I only had two cups of coffee this morning, or three. That's right, I had one here too. So, so yeah, so may, I may get a little wild. I'm not sure if the caffeine will kick in or not. I hope not. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, you know, you look at that song and it talks about uh, some of the tempest and some of those things. And uh, certainly we, I don't know about you all, but you probably are thinking about the storms or what's going to happen next week, Monday or Tuesday or whatever, when a hurricane comes up through, but those who are in the path of it, uh, certainly songs like that, they certainly find are, are very, very meaningful. So I do thank you for coming out this morning, and I know you had a choice, and I'm glad you chose to come to Holly Grove, your church, and so welcome, glad to hear this morning. So this morning, as we continue through the exposition of the Gospel of John, I do want to take a larger chunk this morning, and I do promise we are going to cover them all because it's narrative, it's story. And so there's not a whole lot of doctrinal issues within this, this story uh, that I can hone in on uh, to my dismay. So we're going to look at the whole story of it, and it's going to be John chapter 9, verses 8 through verse 34, and it's a fabulous uh, story that we've been um, teasing out maybe a little bit for the prior two Sundays. So John chapter 8, I'm sorry, John chapter 9, verses 8 through 34, and God's word reads, therefore the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, is this not the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, this is he. Still others were saying, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I I am the one. And so they were saying to him, how then were your eyes opened? He answered, the man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed and I received sight. And they said to him, where is he? And he said, I don't know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. And so they said to the blind man again, What do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe it of him that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned him saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, He was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, He is of age, ask him. So a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, 
But though I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too, do you? They reviled him and said, You are his disciples, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, Well, here's an amazing thing. You do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not fear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, he has never, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born entirely in sin. Are you going to teach us? So they put him out. Lord, I, I ask your blessing upon the reading of your word. And as we look at this story, it's somewhat humorous, is it not? And yet, Lord, in here we have um, many great applicable points that we can carry over into our life today. But first, Father, I pray that you would illuminate your, the, these words by the power of your Holy Spirit so we can understand its meaning and then know how to apply it to our life. I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. My mind is made up. Quite an obvious title, is it not? It's really humorous as you read through stories such as this, and, and we get to sit on this side of history 2,000 years later and, and watch how it's played out or, or wonder what could have they possibly been thinking. But, but nonetheless, uh, it, it is a fascinating story that is, is put in our biblical text for a purpose, and so we want to try to extrapolate something from it. And so we live in a time when our minds are made up, right? Maybe now more than ever in past history, facts no longer matter. Facts seem to be based solely on individuals' narrative, or at least the narrative that we, that I, want to believe. This narrative is structured around individual comfort, and this makes sense because who wants to be uncomfortable? What makes this approach so polarizing is the diversity that is among us. If there wasn't diversity among us, we would just all agree, right? And we'd go on our happy or maybe unhappy, merrily way. But take, for example, the temperature of the church. Are you comfortable here this morning? Now, I don't even have to go any further, and you can already smile within or, or frown within, whichever you like, uh, and what I'm referring to. You already know, right? <laughs> what, what about the music? Did you like the music this morning? <laughs> I thought it was great, right? I think the temperature is fine, but these are things that we can laugh about, right? Because they can cause division and they can be polarizing within a church. And, and Holly Grove isn't unique. All churches are, are the same because all churches are made up of people just like you and I, whose minds are who we have opinions nonetheless. But what about doctrine? You know, those are some, some petty things we could call them. What about doctrinal issues and the division that that can cause that can cause head coverings for ladies you know ladies most of you need to take that mask and just move it up just a bit right Ruthann knows what I'm talking about and so does my wife um, 
But what about head coverings? No neckties for men. It's happy to see no neckties are here this morning. I'm, I'm scanning the room to make sure of that. Uh, no neckties. What about neckties? Men, make sure your hair is approved length. It all looks pretty good. Graham's might actually be a tad short, uh, but nonetheless. Uh, uh, approved length, length of hair. Um, no radios, right? Um, hopefully you did not listen to a radio this morning or, or watch TV this morning, or hopefully all the cars, I already see that's not the case, need to be all black in the parking lot and make sure there are no chrome bumpers. Now, this is what I grew up with, right? So I can poke fun at myself, and you certainly better not have any insurance. You know, we want to be careful, though, right? We don't want to poke fun too much. Because people come to these beliefs and people come to these understandings out of a sincere heart, whatever that, that may be. But often it has something to do with my level of comfort, my, my story, my narrative, how I see the world and how I want to live in it. But then, of course, we can get to some more weighty matters like, like divorce and remarriage, right? But what about only same-gender marriages, only male leadership, especially in the pastoral and the elder team. And of course, abortion is not acceptable practice for any of Jesus' followers, right? I mean, these are a few more weighty issues that, that we have differing views on to some extent, I'm sure. And obviously, you as a Christian cannot be a Democrat not even a chuckle, there's silence. Or a Republican, if you will. <laughs> right? I mean, these are some of the things that we can really, our minds can be made up and, and we can give it to be very weighty matters. And some of these things that I mentioned you may agree with and others you may not agree with. And some of it, uh, as I can already see, to some extent, my eyes aren't that, sight's not that great but uh, from this distance, but your eyes might be rolling in your heads, wondering where I'm going with all of these things. But one thing I do know is that I'm right and you're wrong. <laughs> My mind is made up. I'm the only one who can think clearly and has it all thought out, right? <sighs> Not much has happened in 2,000 years. But why is that? Now, I, I, I say some ridiculous things and poke fun here and there. Just to, just to kind of put it before us, there are some things that we should poke fun at and not take serious. And then there's some other things that we need to take very serious. But I think simplistically, I, I do believe that it has to do with our own personal feelings and our own personal comforts. Feelings, emotions, and comforts, those are typically what drives our decision-making process. And as we see in our story here this morning, sometimes it's all about, about power about who's in control, right? And the fear of losing that power. And when I'm afraid, when we are afraid, when some can be afraid of losing that power, can have devastating, devastating effects, as I think we'll see from our story here this morning. And so this morning, I've broken it up into, into four sections, and it's just, it's just very simple. Um, it's just obviously, you know, a blind man is interrogated by his, his neighbors. And then we have the, the, 
The parents are interrogated by the, by the Pharisees, and then we have the blind man is interrogated a second time by the Pharisees, and back and forth it goes as the decision is to be made. And so first we just want to look at briefly, uh, the man is interrogated by his, his, his neighbors. I mean, the neighbors did not doubt that this man could see. That was not the issue that we see here in verses 8 through 12. There was no question that this man was born blind. The question was, is this really the man who was born blind? Or is this just someone who has an uncanny look? He's a lookalike. He just looks like someone else. Right? They said, no, this cannot possibly be him. Yes, it, it is him, they say. And so then as they looked into his story, heard his story, they took it to the Pharisees. Now, why did they do that? You know, some would like to look at that and say, well, they took it to the Pharisees because though the Pharisees were in charge, and so they took it to the Pharisees because they wanted the Pharisees to make the decision on it, Right? They wanted the Pharisees to rule over it, if you will. But I'm not 100% sure I want to put that weight onto the neighbors. And I want to give them the benefit of the doubt. And so, so maybe, maybe because they were still unconvinced. I mean, that, that's quite a big deal, is it not? That somebody who was born blind from birth can now, now see. And so maybe they were unconvinced that this really was the man. Maybe they thought it's a hoax. Maybe they thought somebody was playing a trick. And so this, this blind man sitting outside the synagogue was the obvious place to sit because that's where people were coming and going in and out of worship. And who carries more guilt than those going into the worship service, right? And so here's this blind man. And so let's throw him a buck or two and that'll help ease my conscience just, just a little bit because I was kind of stingy this past week, right? We can get crazy with the story. But nonetheless, he sat outside this synagogue. And so let's go to the Pharisees because they too would have seen this man. Let's verify because it's kind of a big deal if this guy is telling us, telling us the truth. But maybe because they had the same thought that this blind man had. That, that wait a minute, nobody's been blind from birth and now can see. So obviously what has happened to me could have only been an act of God. Medical, you, you can't say the doctors, you can't say the optometrist, you can't say the surgeon, you can't say any medications, none of that, unless you want to look at spit and mud as medication, but, but whatever, I don't see that as medication. Uh, but none, none of that has happened. And so the, I can't have any other explanation as to this, why this guy can see, other than it must have been an act of God. And so the Pharisees, being people in authority in the church, in the synagogue, they would want to know this is the Messiah. This must maybe could be the Christ we have been waiting for. I don't know if that was the intentions of the neighbors, but, but I would like to, to see it that way. I would like to give them the benefit of the doubt that they had said this needs to be further investigated. We need to do a little further investigation on this. And so then the blind man in verses 13 through 17, the blind man is interrogated by the Pharisees and he comes before the Pharisees and the Pharisees see that, yeah, okay, this is, we heard about this story. We heard about this guy. So they brought him to the Pharisees, but John just puts it right out there in verse 14 says, now it was the Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. And so obviously that was a problem because you were not allowed to make mud. You were not allowed to make clay. You were not allowed to do pottery. You're not allowed to lay cement. You're not allowed to do any work on the Sabbath. 
And so at their forefront and the fore of their mind, instantly, John puts in this narrative in this story, gives us a little bit of backstory to the story, that when this work was actually done, it was the Sabbath, and therein lies the problem. In a time, you know, therein lies the problem. It was the Sabbath, and so they kept asking him how he received his sight, and so he told him. He applied clay to my eyes, and I washed, and I now see. So therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not of God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Do you think they really cared how Jesus had done the work in this man's eyes? They just wanted to get it straight again. Okay, now tell me again. He literally went to work, and he did this, and it was the Sabbath. We got him now. I mean, that's what they were thinking. It was an entrapment. Their mind was made up what they were already going to do. And so I I do want to give the Pharisees a little bit of a nod this morning in a positive direction, because if there's one thing they took serious, and that was their Sabbath. I mean, they took their Sabbath very, very serious. And and I could hardly uh, gloss over this without thinking about our own context today in a world and a time where what's essential, what is a non-essential, right? And as we go through life, is your job, is my job, is it essential or is it not essential? How do we discern and how do we make these decisions? And I, for one, had to ask myself the question, if I didn't have to show up this morning to preach, would I be here this morning, right? I'm not really afraid of COVID, so that wouldn't have kept me away. I mean, I don't want to be stupid. I don't want to be unwise in it. Clean that up a bit. (laughs) I want to be smart. I want to make good decisions, right? I want to take precautions. And so I have to wonder about some of those things. Now more than ever, I think what's essential and what is non-essential comes to to, to our mind. And I can't help but wonder. I know there are those... Who, who, are, who do not come to like our gathered worship here this morning. I know there are those with underlying health conditions, and, and this is in no way a judgmental comment or line of thinking. I'm just putting it before us. How do we choose what's essential and what is non-essential? I pick on church this morning simply because they were picking on the Sabbath. So how do we decide what's essential for God and what is not essential for God? How do we decide in our own personal lives, how do we follow Christ in this area or not in this area? I think there there are very good questions for us to think through. There's one thing that our current climate um, has not allowed us to do, and that is to just be indifferent, right? And I think maybe that's a good thing, but it has caused us to think about things maybe a little more deeply. Not that we didn't before, but in the the divisiveness of of our current climate, how can we not think through some things? How can we not wonder, why do I think the way that I think? More than ever, we choose what's important to us, where we go, what we do, how we function. Do we go back to work? Do we not go back to work? And in the context of the narrative of our story, of just of our story here this morning, how do we choose on going back to church? We see it through the news and we see some, some craziness in the church setting. And as a church, I think we have tried to be very careful on how we reopen church. And I think we're doing a good job of it, I do believe. And we certainly don't want to be legalistic. But the other side of the ditch can also be problematic, where we don't see our Sunday gathering that Jesus commands us to do, 
why we don't see it as serious and we see it as so non-essential that it's no longer important, important to us. So I do think we need to be uh, taking a moment to reflect upon where are we this morning. But ultimately, we must follow the evidence of the investigation. And that's what they are doing here this morning because they say, okay, blind man, we understand that was you. And now we understand that you see, we understand something has happened. We're not sure we believe your story. In fact, they, they flat out say they, they don't believe him. And so now they say, let's pull in his parents. Let's do a little further investigation. It's just good common sense, right? So the blind man's parents are now interrogated or investigated or questioned by the, by the Pharisees. And we see it in verses 18 through 23. Jews did not believe him that he was born blind, that he received his sight until, see, until they called and talked to the parents, and then evidently they decided to believe it, to believe that he was this man and that he was born blind. And so they asked the parents two questions. They asked the parents two questions. Is this your son? And who opened his eyes? Okay, so is this your son? His eyes are obviously opened. So who, who opened then? Who opened them? Again, I want you to notice there was no question over his blindness. We must, get, we must understand that, that there was no question that this man was or wasn't blind. It was quite clear in this biblical miracle that there was without a doubt, without question, a man who was miraculously healed, miraculously given sight. There was no, no avenue for them to think otherwise here this morning. And so they reply, yes. He is our son, and how he sees, we don't know. We don't know who opened his eyes. So, yes, he sees, and we don't know the how, and we don't know the who. We don't know how he now sees, and we don't know who caused this to happen. And the text tells us, John is faithful to record for us in verse 22, that his parents had said this because they were afraid of the Jewish people. Now, I want to take a step back right here, because, uh, again, sometimes John can be criticized for his use of that, the ethnic term Jews. It's just a group of people, right? But I think we must remember that, sure, the Pharisees are Jewish people, but so were this man's parents. So was this man, and so was Jesus. So we're not talking about... Um, about any type of racism that's going on here that sometimes people want to play into some of these conversations. It's not at all the case. It's just that here was some Jewish, it's better to say uh, Pharisees, it's better to say ruling Jews or something, if you want, or the ruling class, if you will, because they were all uh, a Jewish people. And so we want to be very careful uh, with that. And so here the Pharisees, we see in verse 22 that they're just, they're just running a sham. I mean, verse 22, his parents said this because they were afraid of these, these powerful religious people. For, the, for they had already, the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him, confessed Jesus to be the Christ, he was going to be put out of the synagogue. So this was the real reason. The, the leaders had already decided, okay, we've already made up our mind. My mind is made up. Don't confuse me with any facts. We've already decided this Jesus fellow is not the waiting or the coming of the Messiah. 
So that's what they've already decided. The parents already knew that. And so the parents say, uh, well, they were afraid of Jews. But what they were really afraid of is that they were afraid to be put out of the synagogue. They did not want to be put out of the synagogue. The synagogue was the life of the church. And I talked earlier about the time as a, as, a, as a wee little lad who grew up with having your hair out of certain lights, who grew up with no radio, who grew up with no TV. I mean, I was really deprived little kid, but I ate great pumpkin pie. But, you know, and we had to drive black cars and I like black and chrome, and we could have no chrome on the cars or things like that. And I, and I talk about that as in a negative sense, but there is one thing that I learned through that time, and one thing that I try to pass on to you, and that is the importance of the church family. It's so important to have our church family, a place that we can rely on, a place that we can share, the place that we know that we have people that truly and dearly care for us. If we don't care for each other, if you don't care for those around you, maybe you need to find another synagogue to go to. Can I be that blunt? Right? Because this is our family. And this is one thing that they had going for themselves. And this is one thing that these parents did not want to lose. They did not want to lose the fellowship of the church family. This isn't a civic club. This isn't a country club. This is a very special place, a special place where you don't pay to be a member of. You pay because you truly want to be there and you like the people who are there. And the parents were afraid of losing that. Can you blame them? Can you blame them? They want to lose that fellowship. If there's a time again that we see... And as I said, as an introvert for the first month of lockdown, I thought it was wonderful. I lasted about a month. And then I started going a bit crazy because uh, I actually said, hey, we need some interaction. We need some people. We see it. I mean, we're told by those who keep statistics and records of such things. So that's a pretty broad definition. I can't have no site source to cite. But that, that people are more connected today than ever in the past through social media. And I'm not one of those who criticizes social media. I think we use, you should lose all, use all platforms to stay connected. But people are, are, are more connected now than ever in the past, and yet we're the loneliest that people have ever been. Why is that? Why are you here this morning? You could be watching my excellent sermon from the comfort of your own home this morning via my wife's great video skills. But no, you are here this morning because I hope you wanted to, to see each other and you wanted to be in the physical room together. And that's what the parents were afraid to lose. I think we have so much to learn from this narrative and <clears throat> instead of just focusing in on, on, on the miracle of what happened. We see as this, this drama plays out through this, through this story. And so nonetheless, that was the blind, the, the, the parents time before for the court system. And so now they, they, they see what's happening there. And so now in verse 40, 24, uh, they say, so a second time they called the man who was born blind and called him for him. Okay, so we've questioned you. Your neighbors brought you here. Uh, we've questioned you, and, and we've already decided you're a liar. Uh, our mind's made up, so whatever you say doesn't really matter. And so your mind is made up. So now we questioned your parents, and we didn't like what they had to say either, and they were uncooperative. They, they, they were a hostile witness, if you will. And so now we want to bring you again, and we want to drill you a little uh, deeper. But this man will have none of it, because what would you have? What would you do? Could any human court, could any church, could any pastor, could any preacher, could any president, could, could any person in leadership threaten you in a way that's going to shut you up, if you will, if you were born blind and now you see, right? 
I mean, the, we, we see the, the nerves. We see the, how, how brave this man is. And so the second time they called him in, and they, they got a little deeper. They got a little more serious, and they said, give glory to God. That's just like swearing an oath on the Bible. That's exactly what that is in their, in their time and in their terms. They said, give glory to God, for we know, verse 24, for we know that this man, Jesus, is a sinner. And give glory to God. What this is basically saying is um, the parents have, have given up on this guy. They're unwilling to get involved. So they say, son, you're on your own. We're not going to get involved in it. And so they bring him in. They give glory to God. Well, in this, this is their version of, of, of swearing on the Bible. And I just want to give you one cross-reference. I have very few cross-references for you this morning, but I have two of them, and here's the first of the two. And that is in Deuteronomy, or in Joshua chapter 7, verse 19, where Achan, where the, where the walls of Jerusalem, or the Jer- walls of Jericho came down, and they weren't supposed to take things except for the things that God said that they could actually take. But here comes this, this Aiken fellow, and, and he found something that he really liked. He found something that caught his eye, and so he took it. Well, in the next battle of Ai, as they, they lost that battle, and, and Joshua was like, Lord, what gives? You told me we're going to win this battle. And he realized there was some sinner among them, and so he calls all the people. Joshua calls all the people before for Israel, and we'll pick up the story right there. And Joshua tells to, to Achan, this guy who, who took something, says, My son, I implore you, I, I beg you, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give him praise. Tell me now, what have you done? Do not hide it from me. It's a very serious thing that they had, and this is exactly what they're asking. They were familiar with this text, and this is what they're asking of this man. They're saying, hey, give glory to God for what is happening here. And the Pharisees ask him of that. Be serious. Be straight with us, son. We know that you're a sinner. Come clean. Confess. The Pharisees again ask him that question, and details are so very important. Details are so very important because if we follow them, if we follow the where they lead, but too often, like the Pharisees, our mind is made up and the narrative has been predetermined in our minds, and we read into the text whatever evidence that we want. In Luke chapter 1 is the second reference, but I see time has gotten away from me this morning, so I'm just going to give you that for you to write down. But in Luke chapter 1, where, where, where Luke records this, he says, look, I recorded all things for you so that you know, so that you can have the confidence in knowing And the investigation has been carefully done so that you can believe the things that were laid out before you. I, too, have done this many times in my life where I said, Lord, I grew up under this way. I grew up with these rules, with this doctrine. What is real and what isn't real? What is true? What am I supposed to believe? Good-meaning people say that this is true. Good-meaning people say, no, it's not true. Where do we go? Where do we turn? And obviously, you already know to the answer to that. And that is, that is through good biblical investigation of the text, right? We must follow the text wherever it leads. And that's what I want to offer you this morning. As we study our Bibles, don't approach it in a way that my mind is made up already. It's already made up. No, God, what are you showing me through the text? Right? 
What does it say, those things that are comfortable, those things that are uncomfortable? That's why I often quote Acts 17, 11 to you. Because as the people heard Paul preach, and they said they, they took these things, and they were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Why? Because they, they heard the things that Paul was preaching. They took him earnestly, and then they went home and did what? Just take Paul's word for it? No. They searched the scriptures to make sure Paul was on the right track. You need to do that for me also, but not for my sake, though I would appreciate you tell me if I've gone astray, but for your own sake. You need to do some thorough and some good investigations for your own sake. We live in a fluid time where beliefs and change over ever-changing culture. Now, this cannot be. For us not to be swayed by our feelings, our emotions, we must not only know what we believe, we must know why we believe it. I know you're tired of hearing that. But we, it's not good enough to just know what we believe. I can tell you what I believe. That doesn't mean it's right. And if there's ever a time in the culture and this 2020 that we're living in right now, the importance of knowing why you believe it. I don't really care what you believe unless you can tell me why you believe that. It's just a stump I probably will never get off of. We must know why. Because when things happen to our life, when things come into our life that are not from that narrative that we have told ourselves is the actual truthful narrative, they rock our world, do they not? And they shake our faith to the core unless we know why we believe those things that we believe. And the, and the Pharisees, they appeal to Moses. They say, look, for this guy, we don't know about him, but we do know Moses. We know God spoke to Moses. Well, that's an interesting thing. Did they literally hear God speak to Moses? No, they didn't. They weren't living at that time, so they had to make a choice. You and I also have to make a choice on what we choose to believe and why we believe it. It's a choice, and they chose to believe Moses, but they did not choose to believe Jesus. They claim, we don't even know where this guy's from. Well, that's interesting because in John chapter 7, verse 27, they said, we know Jesus can't be the Messiah because we know where he comes from. So now they're using it in reverse to make their case. Their response is to call him names, to make good on their threat, and to throw him out of the synagogue. And so we must say a word or two about that. As we look at this man put out of his synagogue and put out, you know, um, Deuteronomy says it often, but especially Paul. Paul in um, 1 Corinthians talks much about putting those out of the church, putting some of those out who are not holding to the the model of the church, if you will. Why does that happen? Why is that important? I've experienced that myself. Why is that important? Well, first is to protect others. The church is not a typical institution set up by human, set up by man, set up by women. The church is an institution set up by God. We're not a civic center. We're not a civic club, right? This is an institution that God set up. Members submit to the authority of the church that God gives them. The church is led by a plurality of elders, and Jesus is the head of the church. Elders are to shepherd and protect the flock. That's what the Bible calls us, is sheep. It's a place where we come to be protected, right? In our faith, in what we believe, in what the future holds for us. And the second reason is just to remove that person is so, so hopefully that person, that person will take stock and question what they're doing. And is this really something they want to give up? You know, that's one thing the Amish get a bad rap for shunning. 
Well, it's not all bad. It's maybe not all bad if you truly and deeply care for that person. If we truly care for our family, if we truly care for our church, if it's meaningful, that's value to our life, we want to be part of it. And basically, the reason for putting somebody out like that out of the church is to say, is this sin you're living in worth giving up this for? This for? In our story today, though, the best thing this blind man could do was to just pack up his, his Bible, pack up his belongings, and go find another biblical synagogue, right? They were misusing their power. They were not following the evidence to where it led. So we must not be so hard that we lose our way. We must follow the evidence wherever it leads, no matter the cost or discomfort to us. Lord, I, I pray as we look at the story of this, this man, there's many things we could learn from him. So Lord, I pray that you would work through our hearts and our minds. Those things that are applicable, I pray that they would stick, that we would take heed, that we would take notice. And those that don't, Lord, we would just lay those aside. I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.